Thank you for joining us today at Miniature Wargaming Labs. My name is James, and today I am joined by the designer of Full Spectrum Dominance, Jack, with the Lazy Forger. Jack, how are you doing today? Hi, I'm good. I am glad to be here. Well, you know, let's start off with um, probably one of the most interesting names, Lazy Forger. What is that? So, uh, well, name aside, uh, Lazy Forger is some sort of name slash brand slash nickname I brought with me for uh, at, like, at least 12 years. And I used to be mostly a traditional um, sculptor for terrain back in the days and game designer as a side side hobby. And uh, well, after a few, after after over a decade at this point, we uh, I moved mostly to digital. Um, Feo, which is my uh, partner sculpture, joined me in sculpting for our ranges. And uh, let's say that designing games became a bit more of a serious activity. And um, well, full spectrum dominance is the last uh, game we designed, but definitely. Um, it's not going to be the last. So Lazy Forger is your store and your company for designing your games and the miniatures you have with them. But you don't actually do the physical sculpts. Like you don't have like a factory or a Siocast machine. No, absolutely. Um, the thing is, uh, this uh, whole project, this whole activity uh, uh, has been born as a pure hobby and even now it's not meant to be a full-time job and we try to focus as much as we can in the creative process so uh, even though many people ask for um, printed miniatures or like us shipping them our painted miniatures that's really something uh, I personally know I could never afford to do in terms of time investment and enjoyment so uh, the whole 3D thing that uh, that happened the whole 3D fad that is out now uh, ra um, that, that is now uh, happening is uh, it's a great thing for us because it really allowed us to uh, focus on sculpting and then everything else is handled digitally of course this is a limit too uh, we have some uh, very friendly actually very helpful um, people that are uh, running uh, 3d printing uh, stores too and those people are uh, offering what we have mostly uh, either individual ranges or sorry individual uh, products or whole armies already uh, prepared sort of balance for for spectrum dominance and that allows Actually, it allowed a lot of very good, very cool uh, hobbyists to join our community. So a lot of the stuff we see now printed around is uh, printed by printing services. So that's how most people um, that don't have a 3D printer get hold of our stuff. Okay, because I have the 3D printer, um, mm -hmm. but I can understand... There are several miniature companies I like to buy from in uh, the United Kingdom, Spain, Italy, and it's always the shipping that gets me. Oh, yeah, definitely. So it's like I have to do big orders to make it worth the shipping. Of course, the bigger the order, the more the shipping. So it's normally I only do my Europe buy once a year. So I appreciate having you know, the ability to buy some of the really good sculpts you guys have put out in the um, Thank you. millimeter. Yeah, that so... I'll start off with saying I heard about you from on tabletop. I was listening to and they mentioned it. And I've been thinking about getting into the 15 millimeter sci-fi, you know, kind of to complement the battle tech. And I've been shopping around for miniatures and rules and I liked what I saw. But before we get into that, how did you get into miniature wargaming? How did you get into this uh um the the gentleman craft of content creating? You had to start somewhere. Yeah. So um as a user, I started very young. It's been something that I always did playing war games. I, I am sort of priding myself of uh, not being a Warhammer player. I never played uh, <laughs> Warhammer actively. I always been one of those snobby guys playing indie games, uh, which is definitely a limit. I'm well aware of it, but it's also a great way to see as many different things going on at once. So uh, in a way, I always saw like that there were 
so many people uh, making games, some games being a single page long like Fuber or uh, extremely complex games that are clearly appealing only a small uh, portion of the public, but at the same time providing something that no mainstream game can provide. So from that point of view, uh, I, I, I see a great potential in indie games, even though, uh, of course, the, the there is no chance that it will, became the new, it will become the new big game out there. Um, so I always saw this kind of things, usually people older than me because I was pretty young back then. Then I became one of those old people, well, relatively <laughs> so, and I started writing some. So um, I, I, I honestly don't remember when I wrote the first war game uh, or which one it was, but uh, let's say that the big one I put a lot of effort into, well, me, Phil, and I actually other players too was Round of Fire, which is even now the first edition is out on War Game Bolt. Um, and it was nice because we tried to put something new in it, something unique. At this point, it's actually not that unique because a very similar system is uh, at the core of the new Corvus Belly game that came out like last year or this, yeah, basically last year. But back then it was the only game using that. It's like a, a sick cyclic round uh, device to track activation order for models. Depending on what you do, you either activate earlier or later, later in the game because uh, the kind of action you do and the kind of unit you have. So you have a lot of parameters there, but all tracked in a single thing and the rest of the game was designed around it. So we had that, we had a um, very cheesy, but actually quite interesting uh, steampunk flying ships game. We did our first models there, 3D models, and we printed them via uh, Shapeways and got them and cast them in resin to have multiple copies and brought them at the local convention. It was a lot of work and it was not a very fun game, but it was very fun to make it. So after that, it, it was a, a few of these. And uh, I would say that the full spectrum dominance is not the most original one, but it's definitely the smoother one, the most polished one, and the probably the 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 the, the most enjoyable one. Um, it started like in particular for FSD. We started uh, playing uh, Epic, of course, Epic Armageddon, which is a very nice, very uh, clean game, but it's also very big and it requires a lot of models. And clearly, uh, my feeling for it, at least, is that the amount of stuff on the table is not there because it's necessary for the gameplay. It's there because back then Games Workshop needed to sell more lead, which is very understandable. It's their game, it's their business model, very fair. But sometimes it really felt like things were just piled together and you couldn't just remove a few of them. Actually for quite a, 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 quite, quite a, a lot of time, we tried to find ways to play it more as a skirmish, but it was not a skirmish. It's never been a skirmish. That's not the goal of that game. So we were like, okay, we probably need to design our own and um well back then we didn't have a full range of two playable factions and everything but the tech which is the first of the two faction was already sort of out there and at that point it felt like okay probably it's worth creating a game for for our miniatures but also to encourage people to use their own so designed in a way that miniatures that are based for epic or that the kind of structure of the units that you have in Epic, you, you can you re, you reuse the same basis to play full spectrum dominance. And I, I never liked the idea of a proprietary game where you cannot use other miniatures, which is sort of silly because nobody's coming to your house to arrest you. But in any case, uh, in this case, we're, we're really encouraging people to not use our miniatures too. Sure, we will not sell one set, whatever, but at least people will have their that creativity, that 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 idea of like, okay, these miniatures are actually the one that I chose that are different from the others. Maybe I didn't do them myself, but they're mine. All right. How how would you explain the universe of um full spectrum dominance? What's what's the theme behind it? So um since our main goal was to um allow as many people as possible to play with their own stuff to fit their own settings. We intentionally chose to have our universe uh, loosely defined. So uh, right now, the two factions that are set in the universe are a faction of AIs, basically, that took over 
a certain amount of the systems controlled by humans and that uh, scatter the rest of the humans into various factions. And the idea is, oh, you have a faction of Imperial Guard. That's great. That's going to be another faction, which is something we didn't mention, but you can totally use it. And you can play it as right now the enlisted, which is one of the factions for humans. There are two more factions, two more human factions that are coming uh, this year. And those are going to have, well, the thing is they're, the, 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 the design of each faction is meant in terms of gameplay to be very different. So that's definitely the core, but then you can use either our models or models that fit within that uh, trope to, to play that. So the, the universe itself, it's actually pretty simple. It's a near sci-fi sort of feeling. So uh, there's gonna be uh, shanty towns in space which kind of indicates that the technology is not that advanced. So in terms of aesthetics, that's definitely the goal. So a bit of a borderlands feel, a bit of a Metro 2033 feel, a bit of a generic Mad Max feel, whatever. Uh, doesn't have to be strictly in a desert, doesn't have to be strictly on another planet. But um, the important thing is that since the game is uh, revolving around combined arms, it's revolving around, well, full spectrum dominance. So technology, superiority on different fields to, to overcome the enemy, even though it's a skirmish. The idea is we want something that is not too far in the future, something that doesn't have weird magic uh, laser swords that destroy everything. So something that has to be a bit close to ground, but at the same time, uh, futuristic enough that it allows for mechs, which are actually an important part of the game. As that, that allows for some orbital deployments or other stuff that probably wouldn't work in just a modern warfare sort of uh, setting. Now, did you always, I think it was sold to me as 15 millimeters. Is that just intrinsic to the, the idea there because of the mechs? Because you wanted, because um, you're saying near sci-fi, but you know the difference between near sci-fi and high sci-fi is like how big your stompy robots are. That, that's definitely a way to put it. But um, I, I, as a sci-fi uh, reader, more than player, uh, I feel like uh, advanced sci-fi usually has the kind of Deus Ex Machina, the kind of uh, magic-like technology that sort of breaks the, uh, the the mechanics of a simulative or at least just a serious uh, game, let's say. So that's pretty much why I said near sci-fi. So it's something that you can relate more when you're playing. The idea is that even if you don't know the rules by the book, you can still play the game decently if you just follow what a modern general would do or more like a modern uh, action movie director would do. So you want to try to do the stuff that kind of feels cool, but also reasonable, not too ramble-like. And at that point, usually you will be doing also the, the right thing strategically because the game is meant to work in that direction. So if you have very high-tech stuff, if you have like that, that, that kind of stuff really... Um, works if you are uh, asking the players to really put themselves in a mindset that is not the one of a modern warfare. So that, 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 that is why I was saying that. Also, you're mentioning the 15 millimeters and um, well, personally, I mostly play in six millimeters and most of our models are uh, available. Well, everyone can upscale them and a lot of people are actually printing them in 10 millimeters and in 15 millimeters with amazing results because the level of details uh, I, I really like the idea of having very uh, high details uh, density. So for my six millimeter, I like to have all the tiny things, but if you print it in 15, you get the right amount of details that you can manually like highlight each of them. For me in six mil, that would be crazy. So I usually just dry brush, wash, and do a bit of retouches, but in, in 15 millimeters, you can really do a lot. So another thing that we wanted to do other than that, just saying like, you can use whatever models you, you want is like, you can play in whatever scale, as long as the scale is small enough that, I mean, you cannot play in 28 and hope to have a game within a room, but uh, the, the distances for the game are um, quantized. Is that a word? Like yes. You, you can basically 
measure everything within multiples of a certain distance, which is the only one that you need to measure with a tape once. And for six millimeters games, this distance unit is uh, three uh, inches. So when I play, I just have a stick with three inches uh, marks on it. And that's the only distance I will use. That simplifies the counting when you're counting because humans are not really good at counting above four or five. It doesn't become uh, intuitive. You have to actually do math. When it's lower than that, it's much easier. But also it allows you to change scale or to play the same scale just in a larger table, just because you feel it, just because you have it. I don't know. And um, <clears throat> that is something that we wanted to do. And I'm pretty happy to see that so many people are actually printing and playing in different scales. Okay. Now, one of the things I want to ask you is, you, know, you mentioned full spectrum dominance. So playing in all the domains of warfare, I'm reminded of Battletech, of where you get some of the um, electronic countermeasures, um, mm -hmm. electronic counter countermeasures, and that just mm -hmm. really complicated the rules there. So when you set up this game, it's a classic question. Is this a, a flavor game, beer and pretzels, light rule book, or is this a, a rules mechanic intensive game trying to capture, you know, the real the reality of dealing with like some of the physics you were describing? So um, that's a very uh, tough question because uh, the balance between simulation and emulation is always there. And I feel that compared to previous games, uh, we design uh, full spectrum dominance has a bit more of an emulative approach, which brings it a bit closer to the beer at Brazil direction. As in, you don't really have to uh, mark all the damages for each individual hit. You don't really have to do to check any table. Like we don't have a single table in the manual, and we're very proud of it. So um, on one, like I, I, I really try to focus on uh, a good and smooth user experience, as if it was a software, basically. So uh, the goal was to have all the information you need on the cards. So the first time maybe you look at a card of the game, it feels a bit overwhelming because there's a bit of stuff, but everything is written with a decent font. There is no very tiny table that you have to actually squint your eyes just to, to, to see what's in there. It's, uh, we try to have as many um, parameters as it gets within uh, the grasp of the player. So you don't need to check the manual. Uh, something that people are asking is like, can you make a manual print friendly? No, you don't have, you shouldn't print the manual. You, you should, if you really need to read the manual during the game, probably uh, someone is lawyering a bit too much. Like there are very few things you should check in the manual. You should really check the cards though. Like you should print the cards and they, uh, they have to be pretty. They have to be very flashy because all the information is there. Um, so it's not an, exactly a beer oppressor game because you cannot, it's, it's basically impossible to memorize everything of the cards. I uh, compare it to a Frostgrave, for instance, which is a great beer oppressor game because it's really beer oppressor. You can just get distracted and get back on the game and you remember everything. It's there, it's easy and it works because it's very, it's very smooth. In this case, um, the idea is that since there are multiple information at once that you need to keep in mind to balance, to, to break the game, to, to, to cheese it out. Um, the game becomes a bit more chaotic in a good way. So you, you have to follow your uh, action movie director or general instinct. Um, so so it, it, it's a bit in between because there is very little bookkeeping. I really don't like bookkeeping and I feel like that's the worst thing that you can do when you're playing a game because it's basically like work and you're not paid for it. Um, but at the same time, I don't like the idea of having a design in a game that has only one or two characteristics. I'm a huge fan of Song of Blade and Heroes, but um, it's not the game I wanted to design. So in this case, you have a lot of information, but it's not that much and it's very accessible and it's just there. So until you need it, you don't need to read it. Well, then let's, I normally have like this gauge. Um, simulation versus generality. So simulation would be, you know, something for like a general staff college doing war games versus generality, which is more you're trying to replicate what you see in like a cinematic outcome or in a graphic novel. So simulation, you know, the professional war game versus, you know, trying to recreate scenes from Gundam or Ghost in the Shell. Where sure. would you say you fit on that scale? So uh, um, 
the, I, I would like to separate the scale in two scales because simulation, uh, like the, the, the mechanics and the experience, because in terms of experience, I really like the idea of a very cinematic game. So um, for instance, all the support cards you have in the game, the, the characters, all that stuff, it's, it's meant to be abstract. It's meant to create a story. So uh, what happens when people play it, hopefully what, what happens most of the time at least is that um, since you don't have a lot of models in the game, you don't need to keep a lot of stuff uh, tracked. It is nice that you can actually uh, impersonate a character. You can really feel like, oh, that unit is really doing well because it's it's few. It's not a lot of units, and each have enough special things that can do or uh, um, environmental uh, effects that can happen that. Uh, you, you really give a, a, a story to th at least the, the unit that uh, is actually driving the game, which is generally on one side or the other side, depending on what you do. Uh, in terms of simulations versus emulation of mechanics, I'm pretty much in the middle because I feel like our uh, combat system is quite simulative in a, in a smart way, not really deep, but it, it kind of works in a way that... Um, if you design a new weapon and you design it well and you put the numbers in the right place, then what happens is actually what should happen. And uh, your reaction are actually what the reaction should be for that kind of weapon, because otherwise uh, you, you lose. So I am very cinematic, but almost simulative. Okay. Now let's talk about the mechanics of the game. So normally yeah. that is um, D6, D12, D20, I go, you go, what's the command, um, what's the turn cycle like, initiative, that, that kind of stuff. So if you were at a convention, um, how would you describe this someone as like the elevator pitch of like, this is how my game works? Sure. So activation goes with a Saga-like system. So if you're uh, familiar with Saga, like activation dice that you have, that you roll at the beginning of every round, and you have a pool of them that you can use to to, to do stuff. So you don't activate everything at every uh, round. And during a round, activations are alternated in, tur in turns. So you basically have an, a very uh, tightly alternated activation for units, and you don't get to do everything. Like most units can do a lot of stuff. You don't get to do everything for every unit, uh, both because there is a limit of actions. You only do two actions per unit, but also a cost in activation dice that are limited. So. Um, that is also a cinematic aspect. Whatever you do uh, will block something else to happen in your uh, on your side. Um, well, that's pretty much it. And dice-wise, we use uh, D6, D8, and D10, and D12. So we have a mix of them, mostly for combat that those are required. And then you need like the bunch of D6s for as activation dice that basically once rolled, uh, depending on the values, will uh, allow to do some stuff or some other. Since numbers uh, closer to six are more for offensive abilities and numbers closer to one are more for command or movement abilities, you might want to balance your uh, faction, your um, your army list, so that you get to have a bit of each, because otherwise you will probably, some of the turns, not have enough dice for all the stuff you want to have, you want to do. All right. Um, so when you set up this game, what model count were you thinking of? Because normally the smaller scale games, we think of like massive armies. <clears throat> um, you were mentioning Epic, for example, or it could be on the yeah. battle tech of where it's just four models per side. What was the model count, the model range you were thinking for each side? So um, given our, my name, Lazy Forger, uh, I am very aware that I, I cannot paint a full Epic army. It's just, it's just impossible for me. So um what I wanted to do is to have a game that you can play on a small space, but also a game that you can actually get to play with a fully painted terrain and armies. So the game, first of all, the table size is uh, 12DU by 8DU, which in six millimeters translates to uh, 60 by 90 centimeters or three by two feet, which is very tiny. And that means that you can actually finish a table. You can paint it. You can even add like tiny details in it because it's a fourth of a Warhammer table in size. And uh, the factions, like, it really depends on what kind of units you decide to get. But uh, with a standard um, with a standard army, you probably get, like, 
half a dozen tanks and three, four units of infantry, each of three bases. So at the end of the day, on in terms of like activating independent things that activate, you have the standard six, eight uh, activating um, nuclei, just like most of the any kind of war game ever, but most of them are individual tanks or groups of three infantry uh, bases, which is like 15, six millimeter models, very tiny. And this means that if you uh, are decently skilled with uh, small scales, you can easily paint uh, uh, an army in an evening. Okay. Now, so you mentioned the difference between like the armor and infantry. So is the idea the infantry are kind of like you control multiple stands at once and the armor and the mechs you control individually. So it's a mix of kind of like individual model control and squad control. That is correct. Uh, infantry is uh, very abstract actually. So the way uh, it interacts with terrain, for instance, since I'm very well aware that people cannot and will not paint, uh, print very small terrain and paint the inside of them so that infantry can fit also bases would be a problem. Basically, Infantry is kind of abstract, and uh, the number of bases regulates the the damage, but also the 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 health points. Basically, um, on the other hand, uh, I try to make as skirmishy as possible the experience for um, tanks or mechs. Uh, we device uh, we devises a nice uh, system for uh, damage tracking, which is it's pretty simple actually, but it allows to have. Uh, as I mentioned before, a story going on because the different kind of damage might affect the model, but also not having to check any kind of predetermined table on the, on, the, on the manual. You just have for each model, you have a different damage profile, we call it. And the damage profile itself is very important because it both defines how weak a model is or sturdy, and also what kind of effects damages can have on the model. So you basically have just six numbers with six symbols on it. You roll a die when you receive a damage that is not saved and you uh, mark that spot on the card. You usually put just a small counter in it. And if uh, another counter falls on the same spot or on the same slot of spots, uh, the model is destroyed. So um, this means that you don't have eight points to track, which is something that I always found a bit um, uh, it, there's a lot of uh, counting to do, and it kind of makes little sense to have 43 hit points on a tank. So it, it's not like you're hitting 43 times the same spot. It, there are different areas. You might be lucky. You might get lucky and just hit uh, some uh, citadel. I don't know if that's the term for tanks too. Or uh, you might just hit five times on the front plate and have no effect. So that's the whole idea. So. Compared to Battletech, as you mentioned before, there is a bit less of that feeling, which is actually something I, I find very fascinating. I really like the idea of like, oh, I'm gonna track every single side of my uh, mech. Let's see what happens. But it doesn't help to have a smooth experience. So right now our goal was to have a smooth user experience. And uh, I think our direction uh, worked pretty well. Yeah, because I think the more granularity you do, as in the case of like battle tech, the more of like, why don't I just play a video game? Yeah. And they'll track all this for me. So exactly. the, the fun of the tabletop is being able to move stuff around, but you don't want it to be a game of accounting. Yeah. 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 Uh, it is funny that um, I was at a programming convention a few months ago and I was talking with people that were actually game designers and uh, I, I, I'm not a video game designer. And I was basically talking with them and I was like, okay, imagine you have a computer that is really lazy and is really bad at math and has very little memory, but at the same time is extremely smart at figuring uh, out like strategies or directions, pathfinding and stuff like that. And that's a human basically. So um, one thing I always try to do after the first iteration of my games is to reduce numbers. Every number that is above six, seven is a number you should probably not be using. Um, every uh, mathematical operation that you do above those numbers is something that really doesn't work for human brains. So of course you can do it, like everyone can do one, but well, almost everyone, but um, it's something that distracts from the game. It's something that costs you energy that makes you wish you had a computer at that point. No, I, I understand that. I, I see that when people handle percentages. Yeah. 
especially when they have to do it multiple times, like add add 13%, take away 20, now add 25%. By the second rendition, it it, get, it falls apart. Yeah. But, <laughs> but, I, but I, sorry, sorry. Oh, no, no. So I, I just want to ask, how much can you customize the force? Um, um, so talking about like <clears throat> the different models, sort of like are there are different grades of infantry and different grades of tanks, and can you modify those with like so, um, weapons? Um, I uh, honestly wish it was easier to mo- to customize stuff because I I am the first one that really enjoys that. But for the sake of uh, balance gaming and for the sake uh, the sake of uh, simplification, we decided not to. We decided that. Um, we, we have a few profiles for the bigger tech mech. There is a there, there is just that one mech that has three different profiles for weapons. But other than that, the the the, the whole spirit was that we're not really trying to please the rivet counters here. So uh, the fact that it's a sci-fi setting really helps. But it's not just that. It's the, the thing is that um, what what we are trying to provide to to players for this game is like a cinematic experience and also a a highly strategic or tactical more like uh, experience and not a recreation of something. So sure, maybe your tank has a longer baller than the other tank you have and you wish you had two slightly different profiles for those tanks, but I don't believe that that uh, adds to the tactic of the game or to the cinematic feel of the game. It adds to another thing, which is like another uh, itch that I definitely like to scratch sometimes, which is like, oh, I'm going to make exactly that model with exactly those um, equip on it. And it's going to be exactly what I want it to be. That thing you cannot do. Um, I wish you could, but that would require a level of um, complexity for the players and for um in order to allow any idea of balance gaming, which is probably not realistic. So we decided to narrow the scope a bit. And now you can have your tank. There is one main battle tank. And if you want a heavy battle tank, there is one, but there is nothing in between. And it should be fine. The game experience should be the same. Now, how long do you imagine a game will go? So you already defined the model count and the play space you know, two by two foot by three foot for us Americans. Um, so what, how many minutes did you expect a game to last? So uh, since the game is not exactly beer and brazil, um, I would say that uh, 90 minutes is a reasonable time for a game if you have played before. If you haven't, it's probably a bit more. Uh, it's not because of the high level of uh, bookkeeping. There isn't much. It's because each unit acts independently and each unit has a meaning strategically. You don't have that many, but it's like playing a a skirmish with like 12, 15 models per side. That's something that takes a bit of time. You have to decide what to do. You have to choose your strategies. Usually the the scenarios have enough different objectives that you have to balance it out. So uh, I will say 90 to 90 minutes to two hours, depending on the, uh, speed of the players now with that comes so when you design that and you came up with that time plot that time plot what kind of density of terrain because i imagine that two by three isn't just an open field you had a certain idea of how much terrain cover um, was going yeah. to be on the board for people to maneuver around to create that uh that time marker so are we thinking 25 percent coverage 50 where were we going so um well, full spectrum dominance is a skirmish. So it follows the terrain feel of a skirmish. So it has to be pretty dense. Um, I wouldn't know exactly about the percentage, but I would say that you don't want to have a line of sides unbroken from one side to the other of the table ever. You want to have stuff there. You want to allow uh, um, cautious movement if you want to so someone just moving from one piece of terrain to the other especially infantry which uses terrain much better uh, vehicles and mechs are not really good with it with terrain but infantry can use it well can cross it can move through buildings while the others cannot so it's pretty important to have a dense terrain so 25 to 50 i would say okay now with this um so i went and bought the rule book that you sold and we'll we'll talk about that later 
But um, is there a campaign feature currently in the rules um, with like uh, or link scenarios, something to create like a narrative arc to the game? Uh, we don't have one now in the Discord group right now. There are two different uh, user made campaigns that are being developed and we would love to make more. Uh, however, before doing that, especially because of the general feel of the uh, of the armies, we didn't want to immediately provide a link scenario that people who don't use our model wouldn't be able to enjoy. So right now we are working on three more um, scenarios for the manual that are part of the stretch goals of the campaign we run. And those are going to be still separated between them. There's not going to be a link between them, but we totally would love to make more. That's actually in the plans. We are planning to make a few linked campaigns in the future. Now, I I like to ask this question. Has anyone <laughs> uh, seen anyone reskin your game? And so I'm, I'm always fascinated when like people like you develop a brand new game and it's out for five minutes. And then someone takes that game and says, you know, near future is fun, but, you know, Conflict 47, World War II, that would work for that. So it's like five minutes after you've created a game, launched your baby out into the world, someone's already decided, you know what, I'm going to put that onto something else. Have you started to see that yet? Or are there any thoughts about you guys doing that? Definitely the latter. The latter. As <laughs> in, I, I've been trying to encourage people actually to do so but as part of unofficial uh, expansions for the game. I would totally love to see, uh, I am a big fan of uh, one rule to rule them all sort of <laughs> philosophy. So if one rules, uh, rule set works, there is no reason not to use it for, uh, well, maybe not everything, but at least everything within a certain range around it. Um, not yet, because mostly people are still trying to figure it out right now. And uh, the people that have been playing for quite some time that have been like the very much most valuable play testers, they're still pretty much into sci-fi right now. But I've been trying to convince people to go and at least make army lists for, without even changing a single thing about the game. The idea is that the system works, period. So I made it for sci-fi because I like sci-fi and because I like the, the freedom that it gives. But if someone wants to make it for all the different kind of tanks for World War II, why not? That's great. Uh, it's not taking anything from me. Actually, it's helping the, 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 the spread of the game and it's great. That's really good. Of course, it's, if another company starts taking the rules and making their own stuff, that's a different story. But I don't think that we'll get to that anytime soon and the community is pretty like the the miniature wargaming indie community is small enough that that kind of stuff would be would not pass in notice okay well i was just thinking um i gave the example uh weird world war ii so the conflict 47 mm -hmm. so they had some stompy robots in there but you know you can scale it down but i believe there was a game a long time ago it was like uh martians invade like world war one style Oh, that's amazing. So, yeah. Uh, yeah. So don't remember the rifles would fit in with like some of the near. Uh, Absolutely. Like yeah, you said, yeah. just stompy robots, laser guns. I mean, it's just a model. Yeah. 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 No, absolutely. And I feel like um, since the game is not purely emulative, but it has a bit of simulative approach. Um, my hope is that by changing the weapon profiles to something a bit more in line with what you get with World War II, for instance, let's even forget the, the, the World War part. That one is amazing, but it's more like sci-fi, of course. But even if you just stay to sort of realistic World War II, even then, if you change the profiles enough, then hopefully what you get is that people will have to play using strategies that are closer to that time. Uh, the, the typical is, example is if you have bolt-action rifles, you can afford to run in front of the enemy. Then the enemy has like machine guns, but that's another story. But if people just have bolt-action rifles or even like, like front-loading front uh, muskets, at that point, you can actually charge the enemy. So the, the charge is not a rule. You don't have to write a rule where you are allowed to charge. No, you don't need that. You just need to define a front-loading musket and suddenly people will charge. That's an interesting perspective on it. Now, something I've noticed um, in a lot of games that have come out, especially since um, the pandemic, is co-op and solo play. Um, is that in your base rules right now, or is that you know 
a potentiality in the future? Um, it's not in the maze route, in the maze book, but we already developed one system that we are testing, and uh, I don't know when it's going to come out. Uh, the main problem with solo for me, philosophically speaking, or in general, practically speaking, is that it works. It's really fun. Uh, I am more of a co-op player than a solo player, but there is not really much of a difference there. It's pretty much the same. And um, the problem is that if the game doesn't have a very streamlined decision tree for even your models, you cannot have a true uh, masterless enemy like an automata working properly because uh, I, I don't know if you're playing zombie side the decision tree is perfectly clean so you can play you don't need an opponent you just need rules if you're playing something uh, a bit more complex like frostgrave uh, the decision tree is still pretty clear because there is only one action that the enemy can do most of enemies at least, there is one direction that is most convenient because there is no much uh, use of terrain. So they just usually move towards the closest enemy and, and that's it. Um, with full spectrum dominance, not only of course, but with F-Esteem, definitely uh, that's the case. You have a lot of options every turn. Um, it's part of the user experience I was mentioning before. I really like the feel of having always a choice to make. Always, even even tiny ones like do I? I have two actions I can do. There are four different offensive offensive actions I can have. Each of them cost me different dice. So what do I do? Where do I put my dice? Uh, which kind of movement do I react? Do I not react? So all that kind of stuff is extremely difficult and well, I would say impossible to transpose properly into an automata. So our solution was to have automata work only with swarm enemies. So. Uh, we have uh, a faction of bugs basically coming up eventually. Uh, okay. we, have, we have no date set, but bugs would work and definitely zombies too. And the idea is that at that point, you are not just having a, an enemy, like a symmetric enemy fighting you because that wouldn't work. Like it would work only if you are um, expected to basically play the enemy too. Sure, maybe with some decision made by, I don't know, cards or dice, but at the end of the day, you would need to move the enemy. In this case, if you have a swarm, a swarm, you uh, well, first of all, a swarm. It, it is okay for a swarm to be stupid, but also um, you can allow the fact that the, the fact that uh, more stuff can keep coming. So it's a it's a flux of enemies rather than like a counted number of models. They can die with a single hit, so you don't have to track for them. You just add more when they're coming from. So you can have an experience which is very different from a competitive one versus one uh, play, but also quite uh, believable or relatable at least. I don't know if relatable is the word because not many people saw me in reality, but still in that direction. Uh, so the idea is like to have a um, mini game, basically, instead of having cards that represent units, you have cards that represent phase of the of the of the turn and uh, you as an acting player you roll uh, activation dice also for the opponent and then you decide where to put them but you have to put all of them so you basically de decide the the the, the least uh, evil <laughs> among the cards to uh, for that round the problem is that uh, some stuff that happens during the round might force you to uh, reallocate some dice so even there you have choices, but then you have to take risks. So maybe you decide to move the workers. Let's say that there are workers and warriors. You decide to move the workers twice, but then the second time they move, they actually get an objective and they roll two more dice. And at that point, the only place you can allocate uh, those dice to is actually moving the boss. And then you have the boss moving once more. I don't know. It's, it's very generic right now, of course, without having the cards uh, shown, it's, it's pretty hard to, to, to figure it, but um, to visualize it. But uh, that's the general idea. All right. Now, one of the things interested in is not only do you make the rules, but you do your own sculpting. As you said, you have a partner that <clears throat> sculpts with you. Um, how do you decide what to sculpt i'm because there's probably a list of like a thousand models and a thousand ideas and sketches you have how do you decide what to sculpt first and what do you sculpt in like are you zbrush tinkercad guy yeah so um 
the, the second part is easy. Uh, we worked with uh, SketchUp for uh, mechanical drawings, and then we import in Blender and work in Blender for everything oh, else. Okay. Uh, Blender is great, but in terms of a, a CAD, it's not really powerful. It works, but it's it's kind of limited in terms of uh, speed. SketchUp is extremely fast for sketching. It's extremely uh, fast for blocking, especially for architecture models, which is most of what we do, mostly terrain. So it's great, but also pretty crap because the <laughs> meshes it generates are pretty bad and there is a lot of non-manifold issues. So moving to Blender, we fix that and we work around that and add all the other uh, organic details to the models. And uh, uh, we basically create little stories in each model to 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 make them as rich of details, but also also as characterful as possible. Um, we have a pretty huge list of stuff we want to do. Yes, uh, some of the stuff has been basically being delayed for two, three, four years, just ways before we started selling it. Actually, just because there is more stuff uh, coming up, and. Uh, mostly we work through hype. So something that really uh, is motivating is gonna be sculpted first. It's not a very uh, professional business model, I would say. I'm sure there are ways to increase profit without doing that, but um, truth is our productivity, well, my productivity for sure, and but I, I, I think I speak for Theo as well in that, uh, is um, mostly driven by hype and the productivity is so much higher when something is motivating. So um, that's the reason why sometimes we just sculpt things that really don't make sense in the range. That's the reason why we don't have a Patreon because that would imply sculpting no matter what. And that would be painful, that would be inefficient and that would be, uh, well, kind of, I don't know. I, I would feel bad for the, the customers because it would be uh, uninspired. And uh, and that's also the reason why there is a lot of mechanical stuff in my models because I really like it. Like most of some some sort of industrial stuff. We have a whole. Uh, I, I'm working on a whole industrial range now that is going to be really really cool. But uh, it's pretty much in my mind right now. And uh, there is two more factions coming. So yeah, we're trying to balance between like what we need to do because it's really necessary for the game and what we want to do because it's cool. Mostly the latter. Okay. Well, you know, this is one, you, you brought something up. And so let me deviate mm -hmm. back to some of the rules things. So I've seen sure. your shanty towns. Yeah. And I know your favelas. Now you talk about designing industrial zones. Yeah. You see in future, um, future rule releases of, well, you know, fighting in a favela would be different than fighting in a heavy reinforced concrete industrial zone. So would you see different rule packs? to match some of your terrain since that issue of will the terrain affect the rules? You could also that's have a, it like swampy ground or forests. That's a very good point. Um, I would say that there are two different directions in which uh, rules would change. One is scenarios. So um, if I make a scenario for favelas, I would imply that if you hit a favela, you might get some gangster getting up and shooting at you. And that's the kind of stuff that is written in the scenario. So if you want to use uh, industrial terrain for, to play that scenario, that's on you, but that scenario is meant to be played with favelas. So that's one way you get to have uh, special rules because they're not, I, I'm not a huge fan of adding rules to the core of a game if possible. Um, I would rather add it in a scenario specific and then that's what happens there. So you're using favelas there because those are meant to be favelas. But on the other hand, actually, um, the way terrain is defined in the game, it's not particularly unique or brilliant, but it's kind of solid. And um, if you place, for instance, industrial terrain rather than favelas, you would have larger chunks of terrain and then larger areas that are empty between the terrain. So if you're play playing with smaller buildings connected in uh, in a maze-like structure, the gameplay would change a lot. So um, yeah, definitely there will be some more rules specific for some specific terrain, but I would say that it's mostly gonna be within uh, one scenario or a certain number of scenario that are uh, like linked within that range. An idea would be actually for the future, like we're planning to uh, release um, uh, another campaign for the industrial terrain and together with the Wastelanders Union faction, which is basically Mad Max people, but they're actually construction worker with like a nine to 
five job and they were left on the planet. And now they have a lot of construction machinery that has become weaponized. So a bit less and more like we're a union. So <laughs> like still angry people, still angry people with chainsaws, but they know that, how to that describes a lot of unions I've run into. So yeah. And they have like their own uh, safety equipment. So they have safety gear, so they don't explode. <laughs> they, they explode con- with, with, with their, uh, with their safety on, <laughs> but yeah. So, so the, that, yeah, that, that mentally that's your difference between the Mad Max and your version is safety equipment. Like everyone has their harnesses properly attached. And... Yeah, exactly. It's like, like moderately angry Max. <laughs> let's put it like that like angry but not to that point that he removes the helmet the helmet is going to be there he's not stupid he's just angry anyways um so the idea is like with that and the industrial terrain that could be like a small connected scenarios that are really make use of that terrain but uh, we were aware that most of the people who get our terrain they make it they get it because they wanted to use it for other games and that's not just perfectly fine that's great we want at this point every small scale group I jump into, I see our stuff being used, and that's great. Excellent. Now, um, where do you see this game expanding into the future? So you've talked, we've seen the core book drop, and we'll talk yep. about where to get that. But how do you conceptualize the expansions? Um, you've given some hints about what you're working on process, but what's your rollout for say like the next year? So plans for the next year are, uh, well, many, but mostly there are two more factions coming. Each faction will come with basically what is a, um, well, at the end of the day, the, the core of a new faction are the cards of the new faction. So what units are represented with, what new kind of support cards or character cards you get with the, with the new factions. So that's basically the biggest uh, work to do. One of them is almost done in terms of model. The other one is almost done in terms of cards. I wish it was the same one. It isn't. So both of them have a bit of extra work to be done, but both of them are actually in a, in a good stage. And those would, uh, well, I mean, it's, it's pretty obvious. They would increase the, the combinatory of different encounters you can have because right now it's always tech versus enlisted or enlisted versus enlisted or tech versus tech. Now you get two new players, two new uh, factions that you can mix and it's going to be interesting. Um, other than that, uh, we have uh, a behemoth, behemoth sorry, uh, expansion going on and that's going to be included actually in the main manual. It was a stretch goal of the campaign and it uh, finally make, uses, <clears throat> make use of the uh, big, big big models we have included in every faction. So each faction has a unique, pretty big and pretty clearly very impractical model there. And uh, the the overall idea was that um, we will include rules for it. Do not expect it to be balanced. Do not expect it to be uh, (laughs) the equivalent of half an army of small ones because that's not going to happen. So we will uh, think of scenarios that work around it we will, um, or we will just recommend, okay, both players can get theirs. I'm not sure if that's perfectly balanced, but at least at that point, both of them will be broken in a similar way. (laughs) Um, So this is definitely the first expansion and that's going to be a good experiment because I never did an expansion. I published the game before, but I never did an expansion. I I want to see how people react to it, how people interact with it. But um, other than that, I would say that it's mostly going to be new factions now. I would say that it's safe to say that if you had scenarios and if you had new factions, you don't really need a lot in terms of expansions. One thing that is going on and that is kind of hush-hush, as in like it's a very in a preliminary stage and it's very dangerous because it might actually distract me from keep uh, from, from working on this, is that uh, we're talking with some uh, miniature companies and with friends about designing a 28 mils skirmish version of this. Uh, That would totally be a bit out of the scope of today's chat, but that could be an interesting uh, way to reuse the rules once again, like more rule to rule them all for uh, a different uh, feel of a game. The system works, it's very smooth, it's very enjoyable and it proved to be a good system so far. So that will be an interesting direction too, but not for this year, possibly in the 24. (laughs) 
All right, so let's talk about how can you get this game. So I found about out about you on on tabletop. They talked mm-hmm. about your game, so I backed um, backed your game, but not on Kickstarter. So why don't you describe people how they can get this game after they listen to this podcast? Okay, so um, <clears throat> well, first of all, the game is available on our my mini factory store next to our models. So it's print and play all around. Um, the game itself right now is it's it's sold for ten dollars, and that covers everything, including the cards, not the miniatures though, which are not strictly necessary. You can play with your own, of course. Um, <clears throat> we run until the second of January. We run a campaign on my mini factory, which is it basically hosts something very similar to Kickstarter, very similar. It is a bit uh, less uh, famous, of course, but it's also targeting exactly the kind of people we wanted to target, which is 3D printer people, people with a 3D printer. So that worked for us very well. We got a very successful campaign, actually unexpectedly successful. Um, And even now it is possible to late pledge and you can get uh, the game plus quite a bit of extra stuff, mostly uh, a few infantry models, a few tanks, just because, and uh, quite a bit of terrain, actually, like three, four, five different sets of terrain. Some of them are included. Some of them are still being sculpted because there were stretch goals and they are almost done. In any case, if you back for $15, I think, you can get all of it. Or there is the full all-in pledge for something around, I'm not even sure now what it is. I think it's like 90 and you get two factions, quite a lot of terrain, actually two lots of terrain because you get all the shanty setting all the Asian city setting sculpted by Phil and uh, all the stretch goals that we unlocked. So there's quite a lot of stuff if you want to uh, invest a bit more or you can just get the manual and a few very fun new, still unreleased actually uh, models that you get uh, there and that are useful even if even if you're just curious about the game, the game and then you're actually playing Battletech, you can totally just pledge those 15 bucks and get the, the terrain for Battletech. Okay. Now you're on my mini factory. You already have a store yeah. and we're talking about pledges. So you didn't go the Kickstarter route. Um, I'm always fascinated by people who don't go the Kickstarter route. What was your thinking behind that? <clears throat> so um, I am a friend with many people in the, in the miniature manufacturing uh, field. And I heard many horror stories uh, not because of Kickstarter. Kickstarter is really good and everything, but because of the whole bank transactions linked to it, because of the late pledge handling, which is not done within the platform. I might actually not be very, uh, I might not know what I'm talking about exactly right now, but uh, because I didn't really consider Kickstarter as an option because being on my manufacturer already and having support from the people, the crowd of my manufacturer, like the, the, the people who work there, uh, it, it, it felt like the, the best option for us. We had our uh, marketing handled by them somehow, not exactly, actually, we worked a lot on that. Uh, we got in contact with uh, on tabletop which is where you heard of us and quite a few other youtubers but um they were running <clears throat> the newsletter campaigns and we were in contact with them it it was a it was quite of a quite a, a good experience in terms of uh, human interaction also the whole billing system is already integrated for the store so it felt a lot more convenient for us to just uh, stick with that Okay. Now, even if there's not problems with using Kickstarter, as long as there's just a perception of like, you know, the user interface, ease of use. But that's why I was interested in you since you had a My Mini Factory and you, they had their own version of that. It's like, hey, I already have a store here. I'm a 3D sculptor. Let me just use the native features available to me. Yep. Yeah, yeah, and that worked well because at that point my credibility was there. Uh, sure, I was targeting the same people that are already on my mini factory, which is not more likely. It's not all the three D printers in the planet, but uh, those people can actually see what I sell. They can actually see that I've been around for years. That uh, people are 
making like pressing the heart button for my page. And so I, I get, I gain visibility and credibility. So credibility, which means that I got more people buying from us, but also visibility, which mean, meant that actually we increased the sales during the campaign of the other stuff too, because people were just seeing, oh, this guy is good. Let's, let's get this thing. Oh, let's get the other thing and so forth. You know, I, I've often heard about like marketing efforts related to uh, miniature wargaming. And honestly, I don't, selling hits to addicts isn't the hardest sell out there. So, you know, like <laughs> 10 bucks for a new game. Sure. I've yeah, I've did more money on coffee than that game. And I'll probably get more out of the game. That's very true. Uh, on the other hand, uh, we're... It is interesting because small scales are a very niche in the niche sort of thing. And especially if you get outside of Epic, so outside of people that are really into games worship, um, they're not, there's not a lot. So on one side, we're probably uh, at this point, especially in terms of terrain, we are, uh, as I said before, we are in, on every table. Like pretty much everyone has something from us. Not only, of course, but... Uh, it's pretty rare for me to see a fully uh, painted and, and like uh, organized uh, field table without some of our stuff. But it's still a very small percentage of the players of generic war games. So for us, the, 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 the hardest thing in terms of marketing is not like to get to the six mil players and say, like, buy from us. They know us already. Of course they buy. It's mostly convincing people that six mils is a thing or small scales are a thing, convincing people that like, no, that's not true. You don't lose your sight if you try to paint this. It's actually easier because you just need washes and dry brush and it's already pretty good. So for for us right now, it's more of a um, awareness campaign, like rather than like a sales campaign. Uh, We're trying to really convince people just not even just turn them into small scales, just keep playing whatever, but just be aware that it exists. And if you're aware that it exists, yeah, sure. As you said, 10 bucks for a new game, sure, why not? And there are there have been so many people during the campaign that are exactly like that, people who probably will never play it or that have never definitely tried before uh, a small scale or that maybe they will print a bit of it and then they will decide that that's not for them, which is perfectly fine, but at least they try it. And that is our goal right now. Well, do you think you've benefited from um the resurgence of popularity of battletech because if you design a game at six millimeter battletech's out there here in the united states battletech is now sold in like barnes and noble stores so this is like a common large-scale bookstore you can go find six millimeter models for sale so i mean that was not the case three years ago um so you have the advantage of where at least in the U.S. market, the uh, proliferation of six miller gaming is is increasing here, because the way you describe your game, all I need is your book, and I'm done. I already have more BattleTech models than I'll ever be able to play with, in, yeah. in all honesty. Um, so adding another ten dollar rule book is like, well, I just get a new game for the models I already have. Yeah, you just might need a bit more infantry and tanks just because BattleTech is. Well, I, I was always infantry heavy. I always okay. That's perfect. I, then. I remember. I remember BattleTech when it first started, where mechs were supposed to be rare. So I always mm-hmm. and I always wanted land air mechs. So the transforming Robotech guys. Yeah, I have too many of those. Okay, that's perfect then. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I, I guess that's uh, that was like a very good thing. Like, like when we started, we actually released quite a few, just terrains, no no models at the beginning. And the city models, the city uh, buildings that are sculpted by Feo, by the way, are uh, even now one of the best sellers. Like they're really selling well because they're really good models, of course, and also because they really cover something that no one else has done, which is simple city buildings. Most people have to do the destroyed skull demon uh, thing with... more skulls on it and, and, and ooze. And it's, it's really great. It's not even easy to do or whatever, but sometimes just a simply well done and solid 
believable city building that would work in a near sci-fi setting like Battletech would work. So that was actually a very good indicator back at the beginning that, yeah, maybe we should do more stuff in the direction of Battletech. And we did, and it went well. So uh, I guess that that's actually probably one of the reasons why um, Six Mills grew. But I think that the other reason is that people with 3D printers are realizing that it is very easy to print small scale stuff. Oh yeah. Like yeah. I, I, I used to be, I, yeah, yeah I, I used to be like a, a traditional sculptor for terrain. And the problem, the, the silly thing actually was that most of the time my my cost, my pay, like my, my salary, not salary, sorry, my fee for the sculpt was lower than the cost of the silicon to make the molds for the product. Not because, like, just because it was very expensive silicon. And and that's silly. Like, that's that was a very, it, it was great because I really love to do it. And the, the people working with were really great too. They really love to, to, even now they still do it. But the problem is that it's it's not a winning business model because clearly, producing large stuff doesn't work. And with printers, like you cannot print huge stuff unless you have an FDM printer and there the quality is probably not the best, but with small scale, people are actually realizing, especially printing our stuff, but not just that, whoa, you can actually print a whole satellite dish, like a radio telescope like that. And it comes out and it's ready to be painted and it's huge, even though it's not really huge, it's smaller than a Terminator, not a Terminator, sorry, a Juggernaut, or, or like a tight, like a knight or whatever, but it feels huge because it's, it is actually huge for the scale. So uh, what's happening, I think, is that people are realizing that a 3D printer really allows for extremely high quality for small scales. For some reason, small models are more details than big ones because, well, there are reasons, but like they work well for even cheap printers. And, um, and I think think that that is something that like a lot of people were really surprised, not just by the quality of our models, but the, by the quality of six mil models in general. Like what, like you can get this much detail in a small miniature? Yeah, you can. And for the printer, it's really the same of printing a potato, yeah. small potato. <laughs> okay. Well, Jack, I'd like to thank you for coming on the show. And as more expansions come out um, and as if you launch this 28 millimeter version, I'd love to have you back on and just oh, yeah. talk to you about the expansions and the process because I find it fascinating. I would love to. That would be great. Yeah. Well, everyone, thanks for listening to this episode of Miniature Wargaming Labs and head over to my mini factory. Look for Lazy Forger. And if you already have Battletech, you're just 10 bucks away from playing another game. Oh, yeah. Have a good day. Bye.